Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. You know, oftentimes you've heard um, a lot of different things in worship this morning, but when you come to church, uh, many of us have kids. I'm glad you have the parenting class that's going on. But it reminded me of a little guy that was in Sunday school. For those of you who are not used to church, that's a place where the children go and they learn the Bible and they learn the stories that are there. So this teacher was trying to talk to the class one day and said, okay, I got a question for you, class. Let's see who understands this. What is gray and furry, has a bushy tail, oftentimes sits on its back legs and eats acorns or nuts? A little precocious child in the front raised his hand. I know, I know, I know. And so the teacher says, all right, so what is that? And this little boy or girl, I'm not sure which, said, you know, teacher, it really sounds a lot like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that the way it is in church? The answer is Jesus. You've heard his name a lot this morning. And over the series that we've been doing, we've talked about how the Christian life is really not a, it's a race, but it's not a sprint. It's not a dash. It's more like a marathon. In order to live life in following Christ, it really does require that we have endurance. Hebrews talks about we're to run that race with endurance that God has put before us. And how do we do that? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. We talked about that two weeks ago from Hebrews 12. And, and yet, one of the questions that was raised is, well, what is it, if that's the answer, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, what is it that gets our eyes off of Jesus? Because can we be honest here, isn't it hard to keep maintain that focus? And there are things in our life that want to distract us from following Jesus, aren't there? And so last week we talked about in the life of the apostle Peter, one of the eminent apostles and followers of Jesus, how he got his eyes off of Jesus when he got his eyes onto his past, onto his sin, onto his failures. And he said to Jesus, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will be fishing for men, not for fish. We get our eyes off of Jesus when we get them on our past failures, is what we talked about last week. But we also get our eyes off of Jesus, and we see this in the life of Peter, when we get our eyes onto our circumstances, onto the storms of life. Can we agree with that? What kind of storms are we talking about? Well, there are physical storms, like the earthquakes in Turkey. And if you lived there, your life would be truly shaken, wouldn't it? No pun intended. Loss of home, loss of life, loss of friends, not knowing where you're going to live. Those are some of the storms of life. But there's other things like this, and I've experienced this this week in the lives of different men and women that God has brought into my path, either through personal meeting or phone calls or other types of things. A variety of sicknesses. Some people having surgery and praying for them that God will bring them through the surgery. Others who have sicknesses for which there is no cure. They may be able to maintain it, but they're not going to be cured. And some of you may be in that storm yourself. There was a wife who called me whose husband she had just found out had been unfaithful to her. He had cheated on her. Where'd she go with that? And that's not just men cheating. The statistics that I see about men and women is affairs are happening, even within Christians, about equal in the two genders. Women are unfaithful just as men are. 
So this could have easily been a husband. I have had meetings with husbands who've said, my wife has been unfaithful. Where do you go with that? That's a storm that rocks us to the very core because of feeling abandoned and deceived and, and betrayed. There are financial concerns. People who, in business situations, who actually are wondering if there's enough that's going to be there, enough business for this year. There's other people I've met with this week who are in businesses that are very successful but are having to deal with some lawsuits from disgruntled clients or other people that are there, and they're bringing suit against them, many of them very frivolous. Just this morning, I read an email that came in, even as I got it, the first email that I saw when I got out of bed this morning, and I'm not going to read all of it to you, but this is from a guy who's been a pastor for many years, and he said this, my friend and I were sharing stories as we do about life as we do on our way from Mexico, and he suggested that I reach out to you. You see, I spent the better part of my adult life in full-time pastoral ministry. However, 13 years ago, my life went into a tailspin I never imagined it would, and after a long journey that includes ups and downs, indescribable pain, and joyous discoveries, I'm wondering if it's for time for me to re-engage in pastoral ministry. Would you be willing to get together? How would you answer that? I've already sent an email saying, yes, absolutely, let's talk. I know it was hard. I know it was hard for you to come to this place. Matter of fact, it's been three months since his friend talked to him, encouraging that he get in touch with me. It's a battle. And yet he chose to do that which was hard, as you've chosen, many of you, to do that which is hard, and that's to come to church on a Sunday morning. For some, it's a point of rejoicing. For some, it's a point of last-ditch effort that I've got troubles, I've got problems. But I want to tell you, we're all in the, no pun intended, the same boat because life is filled with trouble. We want to see Jesus in the midst of the storm. And that's what we want to talk about today is following Christ in the storm because let's face it, we're all in the storm. It's not always smooth sailing. If money ever tell you that when you come to faith in Jesus that everything's going to be great, you better ask him what great means because I can promise you it is not smooth sailing. So today, let's talk about following Christ in the storm. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23, we're going to look at how some fearful disciples are strengthened in their faith. It involves very much of being in the storm. If you've got your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with in Matthew 14, and let's read this narrative that the Apostle Matthew has written about the life of Peter. More, it's about the life of Jesus, but in this case, it's how Peter intersects with Jesus. It's another time in which Peter gets his eyes off of Jesus and onto the storm. Turn with me to Matthew 14, whether it's in paper, digital, immaterial. If you don't even have that, just listen. And uh, let the, the story that's here, the narrative, see if you can't envision this in your own mind's eye. Immediately he, meaning Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. 
But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, be encouraged. It is I, do not be afraid. Then Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Friends, this is a reading of the Word of God. Let's talk about it a little bit. What can we learn from this? You know, the last time I taught on that passage was actually on the Sea of Galilee. Thankfully, it was a very calm and tranquil trip across the Sea of Galilee. But we stopped, and the boat just floated and drifted, and we talked about this. Well, there was one day many years ago, about 2,000 years ago to be for sure, that the text is telling us about something that happened historically in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had just fed 5,000 men plus women and children on the, the northeast shores of the Sea of Galilee. He had gone from Capernaum, which was his hometown, not hometown, but was his base of operations in his Galilean ministry, and they'd gone across, and he had fed them, and he gave them a teaching and preaching about, I am the bread of life. And then afterwards, the crowds pressed more. He had dispersed them, but they wanted him to continue to teach, and he sent the disciples off. He put them into a boat, and he said, go to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a small body of water when we think of sea, but it's still a very, very large lake. You may think of some large lakes in the U.S. called maybe the Great Lakes. If you stand on the shore, I mean, it's amazing how much this body of water stretches out there. And so he puts them in the boats to go back across, and that shouldn't have been a big deal because these guys are professional fishermen. They're used to rowing. They're used to sailing on the seas. But in this case, it would be very different because a huge storm comes up and the winds were contrary to them and pushing against them. And Jesus had left them. He's still on the shore. He's not with them physically. He's up on the mountain praying to his heavenly Father, to our heavenly Father. It says that if they go out, there's a long way from shore. If you read this in the Gospel of John, it talks about they were between three and four miles from the shore. And they had rowed all night long. And it says that in the early morning, about the third watch, this is sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, they had been rowing for 9 to 12 hours, and they had only gotten this 3 to 4 miles. And they were contrary. The wind was working against them, and they were fearful because of the storm that was there, and are we going to be able to make it? This is late at night. And they look out, and they see a figure coming across the water, and they don't know who it is. They just see a figure which they believe is an apparition or a ghost, and they're terrified. Perhaps they're terrified that their end is about near. Perhaps they're terrified this is a harbinger of doom. We don't know. They were just terrified. And the Lord Jesus, who it was, said, don't be afraid. How many times do you see those words in Scripture? Don't be afraid. Why would they be there? Because we are so frequently afraid of people as we go through life. 
He said, it is I. Peter says an amazing thing. I love Peter. I love Peter. He's often guilty of foot and mouth disease, so to speak, because he speaks so quickly, but I love his impetuousness when he says, Lord, if that's you, if it's really you, call me to come out to be with you. And Jesus says, come on. I'd like to add, come on in, the water's fine, but that's a little trite for the text. So anyway, he says, come on, and Peter gingerly, I think, gets over the, the gunnel of the boat and puts his feet down and he does what only one other person in all of history has ever done he begins to walk on water he's walking to jesus amazingly no boat before him he's not barefooting he is walking to jesus under his own power or under the power of jesus then what the fateful words there said but seeing what seeing the wind how do you see the wind you can't see the wind can you but you certainly can see its effects seeing the waves feeling the spray on his face feeling and seeing all of this he became afraid and began to sink and he cried out lord save me very logical prayer lord save me and jesus takes him by the hand pulls him up they're in the boat he says, oh, you of little faith. And he's addressing this to Peter, not to all the disciples. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And they were at the shore, and the seas were calmed. When they saw all of this, they did what was logical. They bowed down, and they worshiped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you're not just another rabbi. You're not just another good religious teacher. You're not just a teacher of morals. You are God. And that's the historic example that we have before us. Now, what can we learn from Peter's experience and from that of the other disciples that are here? Well, the main point is what it ended with. And that is this. Jesus' authority over nature demonstrates that his claims are true. He's God. He is not just another religious leader. He is distinct. He is unique. He is God. Jesus himself said that in many different times in many different places. But understand that in order for us to look at this, you can say, well, wait a minute. That sounds like a Sunday school story. That sounds like a neat thing. But that stuff just doesn't happen. And you're right. It doesn't apart from God. It just, these are not just superstitious people. They all understand that these types of things don't happen. But the entirety of this book is it is a supernatural book, meaning it is above nature. It's beyond nature. It's beyond what we can see and taste and feel and touch. It's beyond our experiences. This book is a supernatural book. It is miraculous. When we look at scriptures, we see the parting of the Red Sea in the Older Testament. That's a miracle. That doesn't just happen. Even if God used natural means to do it, it was still a miracle. We learn at different times the virgin birth. How could an individual woman give birth to a child and never ever have sexual relationship with a man? That is impossible, isn't it? But the Virgin Mary says, with God, all things are possible. Do you hear that key phrase, with God? 
You see, the issue is not really whether miracles can take place, whether supernatural occurrences can take place. The answer is, is there a God who is above and can suspend the laws of nature at to do his bidding? That's the real question. And if we believe that there is a God, then the rest of this begins to make sense. But notice, Jesus never did his miracles just willy-nilly, just happenstance. He always used it to teach a greater truth. For instance, the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two little fishes. How did he do that? Why did he do that? Because Jesus wanted to teach a greater truth. And what was the truth? I am the bread of life. When Jesus heals a man who's been born blind, who had never seen the light of day, whose eyes did not function, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. When Jesus called a man out of the grave who had been dead for four days, Lazarus was his name, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Friends, this is about a supernatural book. The question is, are we living supernatural lives by faith in the God who made us and who controls our circumstances? Henry Blackaby, who wrote the book and study of experiencing God, as well as a number of others, said this. Some people will say, God will never ask me to do something I can't do. I have come to believe that if the assignment I sense God is giving me is something I know I can handle, it's probably not of God. The kind of assignments God gives in the Bible are always God-sized. They're always beyond what people can do because he wants to demonstrate his nature, his strength, his provision, and his kindness to people and to a watching world. This is the only way the world will come to know him. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? A people who believe in a powerful God. The first time that Emily and I went to Uganda to work with uh, the, the Watoto Children's Ministry to build homes for orphans, we got to meet Gary and Marilyn Skinner, who are the founders of that ministry. If you've never heard the Watoto Children, go to hear them. If their choir comes to town and they make a West Coast tour about every two years, wherever it is, go hear them. Or have them, better yet, Aaron, check them out, have them here. They will literally just bless you beyond compare and just rock your world in some amazingly good ways. I, I told someone the other day, the first night that we had them at our church years ago, uh, it was amazing, and after the service, everybody was talking about, oh, we need to go, we need to adopt these children, we need to do this, we need to do well, Emily, my wife, and a group of people got together from the congregation, and they started talking, said, we need to go there. We need to help build a home for orphans, too. This was not something that was planned by the pastoral staff or by the elders of the church. This was a very much a grassroots effort. And Emily comes to me, and she said, this is what we're going to do, and you can go if you want to. <laughs> I promise you, that's the kind of wife I have, and I love it. Okay. So this, you can go if you want to. So we get there and we meet Gary and Marilyn Skinner. Well, let me tell you, they went to Uganda when Idi Amin was in charge, for those of you that remember those days. There were death threats on their life. They got there, they founded this little church, and one of the things that smacked them in the face were all the street children, all the orphans that were there. There were 2.5 million orphans in Uganda that day, 1.2 because of AIDS pandemic. Who cares for the orphans? 
what does James say? This is true religion and undefiled that you were visit the widows and the orphans in the day of their distress. And they felt a conviction. We need to do something about the orphans. That's more the church's issue than it is the government's. But they said, how do we do this? It's such a big problem. It's such a, how in the world can we do this? And Gary was saying, he was shaving one morning and, and he was talking to his wife and they were trying to figure out it's such a big problem. We need to do something, but we don't know what to do or how to do it. They said a part of it is what if we, because they both had a uh, background in music, they were with some touring groups, they're Canadian, and they begin to tour the country, you know, back in their past, that's how they met. And they, what if we were to put a children's choir together and begin to tour the UK and Canada and the US, but how in the world are we going to do that? We can't get the money together to do that. We don't have the contacts to do that. So they said, well, we're going to go, and we're going to ask British Airways to give us money for tickets, not money, to give us airline tickets for these children to get them to the U.K. and to Canada and the U.S., but to do it, and we will pay them back at the end out of the money we get from the, the offerings. How often do you think that's going to happen? <laughs> but they had the faith to believe they went, and they were waiting for a representative with British Air, and as he comes out, he says, I know you. I was at your church last Sunday. I, was le I loved what you're doing. This is a guy that was just, he had only been there a few weeks. God used him to make it happen. Friends, that's a God thing. That just doesn't happen apart from God's fingerprints being all over it, Right? They believed him for what is great. John Ortberg in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, said this, I believe that there's something, really someone, inside of us who tells us there's more to life than sitting in the boat. You were made for something more than merely avoiding failure. There is something inside of you that wants to walk on water, to leave the comfort of routine existence and abandon yourselves to the high adventure of knowing God. Can you agree with that? Amen. We were designed for something more than just th surviving. God designed us to experience abundant life. That means thriving even in the storm. He wants us to be and to do something that's bigger that requires that we rely upon him. And yet most of us as believers are living as if we're functional atheists. We don't believe that God's there, we don't believe he cares, or we don't believe he can do something. He's calling us to get out of the boat, just like he called Peter to get out of the boat. We've got to keep our eyes focused on him. Another thing that we learn from this is God sometimes uses challenging circumstances to cause our faith to grow. How would you know your faith is going to hold up if it's not put under test, right? So that's the picture that's here. Jesus directed he compelled his disciples to get in the boat knowing that a storm was coming. He did it anyway because I believe he wanted their faith to grow. It needed to be stretched. You see, according to Mark 6, another of the synoptic gospels that includes this event, it says that the disciples had not yet fully grasped what happened in the feeding of the 5,000. It says their hearts were still a bit hard. They still hadn't received the truth of the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus said, okay, you didn't get that lesson. I'm going to give you another one. And then it called a boat and a storm 
and the middle of the sea. In James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. There's that word again that we've talked about the last few weeks. 1 Peter 1, 6 says, You rejoice in the hope of your salvation, even though now, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So great. I'm in the crucible right now. Well, there's some good news, not just the end result of that, that I want to share with you that the scriptures speak, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. It says this, God is faithful, who with the testing says, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested. Some translations say tempted. Tested beyond what you're able to endure. But he will make a way of escape so that you can endure it. God is going to set the limits as to what you're going through. You say, well, God has a, better esti- a greater estimation of my ability than I do because I, I am really about ready to throw in the towel. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. And he wants to use those difficult times to shape and mold us into the image of Jesus, which is his good for us, to be greatly conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we need to have trust in and believe in. And those are the statements of Scripture. I was at a conference over at Bethany Bible Church. They were simply hosting it with the spiritual formations of Arizona. Ted Wiesty, some of you know Ted, he's a good friend, but he's battled cancer. He's doing well now, and I'm thankful for that. But that night, he had just come out of the hospital, <clears throat> and he's standing before us at a podium like this, and he said, I just want to thank you all for all your prayers. Thank you for the way that you've done that. And I just came from the hospital. He still had a mask on. That was way before COVID, uh, because he was, you know, his immunity system had been compromised greatly. And he said, thank you for your prayers. I'll have to be honest. I am concerned that the treatment may not work. He said, I'm hoping it will. I'm praying that it will. But I am concerned it may not work. But I am more concerned that it will work and I will lose the closeness that I've had with Jesus through these last months. Do you hear that? I sat with a friend at breakfast this week who has cancer, and it's not curable. He may have five years, he may not. That's the average. But the point is, he said almost exactly the same thing to me over breakfast. I talked with my sister-in-law in in a similar fashion as free-floating cancer cells in her body, and every time she goes in for a PET scan, it's like she doesn't know if they've popped up again or if they've metastasized to a certain place. She said exactly the same thing. I'm living my life every day knowing this is a gift from God. I don't know how many days I have, but I have today, and I will trust him in that. Friends, well, all terminal, you understand that, correct? But they have to know that there's a lot less sand in the hourglass than what normally would be there. But they're still walking in faith in Christ. Their eyes are on Christ, not on the storm.
2 Timothy chapter 1, I'm, verse 7 says this. God really wants us to live above the circumstances, not under them. He said, I have not, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of self-control of a sound mind. We can govern where we go. The circumstances of our life <clears throat> and the events of our life and the people around us do not make us who we are. They reveal who we are. A second thought is that fear is a natural response to the storms of life. And I'm not going to take a lot of time on it because that's self-evident. That's why it says so many times in Scripture, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It's a recurring theme in our lives, isn't it? We're confronted with something that's challenging, that's threatening, that we don't know, and we're afraid. So were the disciples, you're in good company, so am I. But that's what the Scriptures say. Uh, <clears throat> Ortberg says this in his book that I just mentioned, if you want to walk on water, you get a boat. Fear has created more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has. For it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. Can I repeat that just in case you were snoozing? Okay, wake up. Fear has created more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has, for it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. Whew, that's a mouthful, isn't it? And unfortunately, it's true. But here's the good news. Our fears are calmed when we're with someone that we love and trust. Have you experienced that? Our fears are calmed when we're with someone that we love and trust. You take, for instance, a small child that's afraid of this lightning storm. Where they want, they want to be with you. They may trust in God, but they want somebody with skin on, as one child put it. You know, that makes a difference, doesn't it? Or you travel to a foreign country, you're in a different language, different currency, different customs. It's always helpful to have someone that's a local that's with you. Our, just, our fears come way down when we have that experience. When I went through a deposition with some things, when, when there were some individuals that were suing our church, which, believe it or not, that does happen, going through that deposition was really a scary thing because I was the representative of the church. that had to, It was really comforting for me to have an attorney with me to come alongside of me to plead our case and to tell me what to answer and what not to answer and how to be prepared for this. That was comforting. Wartburg says this, never try to have more faith, just get to know God better because God is faithful. The better you know him, the more you'll trust him. This week I was at a conference down in a surge network. It's a ministerial network and we heard Angie Wellesley, who's the CEO of Pro Grace. You know, with... Uh, all the talk about pro-life and pro-choice, her organization says we need to care for the rights of the women and the rights of the child so we don't want to be known as one or the other but pro-grace, which is truly honoring life, whether it's the life of the mother or the life of the child. And she talked about how through all of this, it was very insightful. She said this, 25% of women will have an abortion at some time in their life. Four out of 10 women who have an abortion, regularly attend church. So 40% of the 25% are church-going women, regular attenders. But she said less than seven seek counsel, especially from the church, before having an abortion. Why is that? 
Two main reasons. One, fear of being judged. Secondly, the lack of visible support. So there was a counselor that was working with them, and a woman came, and she was considering having an abortion, and the counselor really didn't know where to go with this. And so she asked, she said to the woman, she was praying, and she's saying, Lord, help me. I don't, I don't know how to respond here. And she said, you know, a little while ago to the woman who was pregnant, she said, you said you were a Christian. Could you tell me a time in your life when you really sensed God or Christ present with you in very strong ways? And she said that the woman just sort of stood there and all of a sudden a look came on her face and she said, well, Jesus is always with me. He's never not been with me. So I guess that means he's with me right now in this. And she made the decision to have that child and not to have an abortion. But it was her decision. But do you see what happened there? The wisdom of just asking a question and the confidence that came to this woman who was in a very difficult, challenging situation to carry this child to term and to give birth was because Jesus is with me. Friends, that transaction is nothing someone could be convinced into, argued into, cajoled into, shamed into but it's powerful nonetheless. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you are. Your circumstance may be different. It may be the same. I just want to tell you, Jesus is with you. He said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Jesus knows what you're going through, and he's there. Another thing that we see in this is when God calls us to do something, he will empower us to do it. Now notice, Peter didn't just jump out of the boat. He said, Lord, if it's you, call me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. He went at Jesus' command. He was not testing God. He was not doing something to say, I'm going to do this and trust you're going to show up. He was following a command of God. He was following a directive from God and trusting then that God would provide. This is not being presumptuous nor testing the Lord. And sometimes people have had a tendency to do that, but not Peter. Jesus directed him to lead the boat. That's why it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says when he's in prison, not knowing if he's going to be released or if he's going to be killed for his faith, not knowing if he would have enough food to eat or not, because in prisons those days you didn't get three squares unless somebody provided them for you. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Usually we see that on someone's sneakers or shoulder pads or helmet, you know, some athletic event. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And while I believe that's true, I'm not sure that's biblical. The context that Paul is speaking of is financial. It's can he live? Can he be supported? Can he preach the gospel and trust God with the outcome? I can do all things you have called me to do through Christ who strengthens me. You see the difference in that? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you believe that? Patricia Boyd is a woman in her 30s who saw her body disintegrate. 
She had diabetes, heart attack, two strokes, renal failure, blindness, amputation of both of her legs. She'd end up in a nursing facility punctuated by hospitalizations and days spent in comas, yet throughout this time of increased physical debilitation, she was involved in a local church there in the D.C. area, and she volunteered to serve in whatever ways that she could. They decided they wanted to start a homeless shelter, and nobody would take it on. Nobody would volunteer. Patricia Boyd volunteered. She agreed to lead the church group in starting a homeless shelter. She worked to get zoning changes and fundraise for the facility. She recruited, she trained staff that would run the shelter. And that's why shortly after her death, after one year of successful shelter operations, there were hordes of people surrounding her grave, homeless people standing next door, next shoulder to shoulder to U.S. cabinet members because she had the ability to believe and trust God had called her to do this and he would make a way happen. You know, when Jesus said to Peter, oh, you have little faith, Peter at least had the courage to get out of the boat, didn't he? Not the amount of faith we have, it's the one in whom we place our trust that makes the difference. Mac John Maxwell made this statement. He said, procrastination is the fertilizer that makes difficulties grow. And I love this statement. I was playing golf with a guy earlier. We were talking about faith, and halfway through the round, we, it dawned on we were both Christians, and so that, that's kind of great. I don't always volunteer the fact I'm a pastor at the beginning of a golf round with somebody I don't know their faith status because they don't know how to operate around clergy types, you know. There's a whole other story that I'll tell you some other time. But he made this statement to me, and I loved it. He said this. He says, faith is acting as if it is so, even when it is not so, that it might become so simply because God said so. Can I say that again? Because that's a mouthful, isn't it? Faith is acting as if it is so, even when it is not so, that it might become so simply because God said so. Can I get an amen for that? What great words. And here's the last point. Watching God promotes genuine worship. When we're in the presence of deity, when you see God show up, you see his fingerprints, you see his presence, you see his person in dramatic ways like this, what, what, what does that solicit from within us? It's worship. See, worship is really comprised between two major points. Aaron could give you a much more detailed perspective on this, but generally speaking, I like simple. Simple's my friend. I don't know about you. Okay, but it's revelation. Whether it's nature, whether it's the birth of a child, whether it's the truth of God's word, whether it's some miraculous thing that just happened, that's revelation. There is a God. He is here. He is active. He is engaged. He has revealed himself. And in the revelation of God, the logical, legitimate response is to fall on our knees and worship. Truly you are the Son of God. That's exactly where the disciples were, and that's where we should be, regardless of what our circumstances are. Wartburg said this, I need to worship, because without it I can forget that I have a big God beside me, and instead live in fear. I need to worship, because without it I can forget His calling, begin to live in a spirit of preoccupation. I need to worship because without it I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude and I plod through life 
with blinders on. I need to worship because my natural tendency is towards self-reliance and stubborn independence. Our ability to live in hope, to remain focused on Christ during the storm, is largely dependent on what we feed our minds. This is how we're able to focus on the Savior rather than the storm. Friends, there's a, a book, 31 Days of Praise. I want to encourage you to write this down. Emily and I have gotten cases of these things and given them away. They're written by a woman, Ruth Myers, who was on the mission field. And her husband, at 32 years of age, contracted cancer, particularly painful and aggressive cancer, that took him, leaving her as a widow on the mission field with two small children to care for. Not knowing how she was going to be able to make it, not knowing what the future held, not knowing what her circumstances would do. But I want to read to you what she says. She goes back to Hudson Taylor, who's a great missionary to China. And he said this at the death of his wife. What, can Jesus meet my need? Yes, and more than meet it. No matter how intricate my path, how difficult my service, no matter how sad my bereavement, how far away my loved ones, no matter how helpless I am, how deep are my soul's yearnings, Jesus can meet all and even more than meet. Ruth Meyer says, I discovered this in a new way after my first husband died at 32. I grieved and shed my tears. I felt deep loneliness along with the pressures of being left alone to raise two young children. At times I felt overwhelmed at making all the family decisions. And yet at the same time, I found bright rays of sunlight shining into my heart. How grateful I was to the Lord for his many blessings for Brian and Doreen, that's her children, and for the joys of being their mother, for other people in my life and their loving help, for special answers to prayer, and for small delights such as gazing at a sunset or a unique branch silhouetted against the sky. And even more, the Lord blessed me through times of worship and praise often with tears of joy mingled with sadness. Do you notice how she went to praise and worship and buoyed her in the storm and allowed her to walk on water in amazing ways as she walked hand in hand with her Lord? I'm going to ask Aaron and the team to come back up here and lead us in a concluding song of worship. And wherever you are, whatever you're going through, wherever you have been, I would encourage you to use this song of worship, this time of worship, to help you stay focused on Jesus, not on the storm. Let's focus on him, not on the waves, not on the wind, not on the difficulties. And let's worship him because he truly is God. In just a moment, We'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. We're so glad you came this morning. Thank you for being here. I don't know where you are. God does. The Spirit of God is very present in this room. And 
Maybe there's some things that you heard today that say, you know, I need help one way or another. Be of good cheer. You're not alone. Don't be afraid. Maybe you simply need someone to pray with you right now, even before you leave this morning. There'll be some prayer partners over on this wall if you'd like to do that. Maybe you don't have time to do that right now, but take a minute and write down what your prayer request is, and there'll be some pads on the table before you leave, and just write that down. Drop it in the boxes on your way out. There will be people from here that are praying for you that you might experience the power of the risen Christ who did overcome the grave, and he can overcome your circumstances and mine. I'm going to leave you with this thought as you leave this morning from the words of Jesus. In the night in which he was betrayed, and he's with the disciples in the upper room, he's going to be betrayed and crucified and laid in the tomb. But the third day is coming. He's going to be raised. And he knows this. And he says this. I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. Be encouraged. Don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. God bless you and live in the light of that truth this week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.